There's this global movement that is unrooting our children from ourselves. This lack of roots becomes the place where both state interest and corporate interests come in to fill the void where the family departs. Welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. As you can probably tell by the microphone quality, I am not at home, and I am not thus with Dave. I'm in the middle of doing a parish mission. However, I was in Pittsburgh recently hanging out with Dave for like four hours before he had to go to Columbus to do a gig as well. So me and him are on opposite sides of the country right now. Uh, I'm in North Carolina, uh, loving this wonderful church, St. Mark's, doing evangelization here. Tons of Every Knee Shall Bow fans. It has been such a an amazing parish mission experience when you have this among the people and the ministers and whatnot. The fire is spreading. The gospel is spreading. It is a beautiful thing to see and to hear. What you're about to hear today for this show is actually the first of four talks that I gave to the priests of the province of the Atlanta, oh man, what do you call it? It's a region of five dioceses. So it's Atlanta, Savannah, Raleigh, Charleston, and Charlotte. All of these dioceses, all these priests of the diocese got together with their bishop and me, which is awkward, and I gave a four-session presentation on Pope Francis's Christus Vivid, which is on youth ministry, um, and just talked about youth ministry in general. So that's what this talk you're about to hear is. I had to trim a ton of funny intro stuff. I was so nervous to talk to a room full of priests and bishops, but we went through and I lay out for everyone the history of youth development. Now, if you're not in youth ministry, number one, shame on you. We should all be investing in the younger generation. But also, if you're not actively in youth ministry, you can hear your story in this story. This is the story of how youth culture developed in America with all the way from World War I to the present, what globalization does and, and mass culture and all these things. I think it's super fascinating tying all these threads together. For those of you who are fans of the show, you're going to hear some classics of uh, familism and good old Alexi de Tocqueville quotes and all these things that I love bringing up. But the heart and soul of it is, if we can understand the times, we can bring them the eternities. And that's what I want to be able to do. And that's what I want to be able to do for you listening to this. Like we need to understand youth culture specifically and how we got here in order to minister effectively to them. So I cut the talk down as much as possible. It was originally an hour long talk. I trimmed it down to about 45 minutes. It's still coherent. <laughs> I hope so. So God bless y'all. So uh, just to give you a background about me, I'm 39 years old. Uh, I have been doing youth ministry since I was about 16 in peer ministry. I used to teach a weekly apologetics class to my peers when I was in high school at St. Anthony of Padua in the Woodlands. It was a new parish. A ton of young families moved to the parish. And it was the beginning of Life Team, not necessarily in our diocese, but in our, I think in our deanery. Life Teen has a um, youth ministry movement. As we know, Atlanta is a big area for Life Teen right now. And within that was this whole understanding that the adults ought to serve the youth of the church and create a distinct place for them. And to actually engage in active ministry of what I would describe as winning the youth over for the church and for Jesus Christ. 
Gone were the times of youth coming to church simply because they're, you know, it's, it's their catechesis or whatever. It's not something that was within our life team model in our, in our church. Faith was not presumed, right? A life of faithfulness was not presumed. What was presumed was skepticism, estrangement, or at the very best, non-practicing, right? And maybe I didn't hate God or doubt his existence, but you know, most of the families just didn't practice. So when the ministers and volunteers and all that stuff had that perspective, all of a sudden everything they did had an evangelical evangelizing tinge to it, everything. So that was where my heart really took hold of this notion of evangelization, initial proclamation, the kerygma, all that good stuff that you hear bantied about in books about discipleship and accompaniment and being missionary disciples and all the fun buzzwords that the church has right now. So we're going to go through a bunch of stuff. How did youth culture, how do we get to the state of youth culture as it is today? Here in America, I can't talk about anywhere else. My experience is here in America. I have been, I have been to every major region in the United States. I do a lot of suburban and rural ministry. I do a lot of urban ministry. I do prison ministry, juvenile ministry. I've worked in Catholic schools. I've worked in public schools. I've done all sorts of stuff at all sorts of different levels. So I do have a lot of experience. But my main experience, as we talked about earlier, is the day in, day out of trying to win souls for Jesus Christ in a parish setting. Okay, that's my goal. And so that's where I want to go forward. And I always give this talk. Now, we all know whether you are on the right or on the left, we all agree on one thing about Pope Francis. He loves synods. He loves synods. That's supposed to be a joke. No one laughed. Okay. He loves synods. <laughs> Obligatory chuckle. Do you remember the, the synod to prepare for this document? Christus Vivit. Do you remember that? I, you might not have been a prophet. I have so many friends that were involved in that synod because they essentially did surveys of tens of thousands of youth. And it was all these controversy. Why are you asking atheistic youth, you know, what they want from the church? And why are you asking all this? There's a lot of controversy. Well, I had a friend who was a part of the surveying and all this stuff and various levels within the synod, the pre-synod work. And then she was flown to Rome and she spent a lot of time drafting the documents and working with the bishops that would eventually become the, the major synod document. And then from which Pope Francis would write, Christus vivit, Christ is alive. And it was fascinating to hear the stories of how this process was trying to be rigorous and every single step they took, as with everything today, became politicized, and they're like, we're just trying to get people's views. And it's like, well, how dare you talk to these people and just ignore those people? And it was they were getting it from the right and from the left. So this document was born from a lot of research effort, a lot of studies, um, a lot of surveys went into this globally. Because as you know, the Pope doesn't just want to hear from, you know, Western Europe or America, especially the Pope wants to hear from the church that's in its poorest parts of the world. And so in bringing all this together, what we're going to do is after this talk, this first keynote, the rest of them are going to be dives into the document itself. What I want to do is kind of set up the arena, the context for which this content applies. Does that make sense? So... Let's talk about youth ministry and youth culture. How did we end up here? Now, for the most part, if you think about this, for the history of the world, for most of human history, for most people in that history, the world consisted of an agrarian lifestyle. It was seasonal. It was cyclical. It was a home. It was a domestic work environment, right? You remember the line um, that feminists railed against in the 50s and 60s, a woman's place is in the home? Well, there's an article written called A Man's Place is in the Home, and it was written to illustrate how the ideals of an agrarian life 
were men, women, and their children working together on their family property for generation after generation after generation, that no one was raised alone or isolated, that oftentimes your close relatives all lived with you or near you. So a mom was never alone in her home until the 40s and 50s. A mom had her sisters, her mother, you know, any adult children. They all worked together, not just on the same farm, but often in the same house, sharing the load, doing the chores. Everyone worked with each other. So think about this. For most of human history, it was also an adult world. There was a sharp division. There was adults and the adult world and the adult culture. And then a subset within that was children. There was nothing called adolescence. Right? There were people who were teenagers, but it was, that term wasn't even coined until 1933. So the stuff that we take for granted didn't exist for most of human history. And I think we need to understand that, that the notion of childhood was this brief moment that was mostly biological, that was surpassed when you were somewhere between 13 to 15 years old, culturally speaking, and then you were an adult. You had your bar mitzvah, now you're a man. How many of us would look at a 13-year-old boy and say, you're a man today, right? Very few of us would do that. Yet, yet, that was common throughout most of human civilization. So also, much of the world would be described as tribal or clannish, right? It was familistic in its government, right? That is very important. Or if you want to use Aristotelian, uh, yeah, Aristotelian terms or European terms, it was aristocratic. Most of the world was defined by these people who had a hereditary title to elitism, whether they were a tribe, a clan, a family within that, right? So you got the O before O'Malley, right? That was a designation of tribal importance within Ireland or Scotland. You have this throughout most cultures. It was bound by family, right? So when you hear in the Old Testament that the elders are at the city gates, that's because the literal eldest patriarch of a family would sit outside the gates of a city and they would all sit together and they were the judges for the city. It was all family. Where the state gathers more power, the family necessarily diminishes in the history of cultures. If you want to read more about that, it's a wonderful book by Harvard sociologist Carl Zimmerman called Family and Civilization. And his essential point is there's three modes of family. One where the family is the state, that's called familism or the trustee family. And then on the other end of the spectrum is the atomistic family, where really we're just a bunch of atoms who happen to live together. Right? That's the rampant individualism that we have today. And in the middle, there's this thing that he calls the domestic family. And the domestic family, he says, is actually the ideal, but it's always a transition from one to the other. And the more the state power takes control, the more the need for a family system diminishes. Right? So you can see, and this is not like, so one time I was telling the story doing a theology of the body thing, and a guy, a very uh, conservative man down in Texas with a thick Texas accent, says to me, that's right, state takes away rights from the family. And I said, let me ask you a question, sir. Do you live in the same home that your parents, uh, that you grew up in with your parents? He said, no. He said, well, my daddy died. Uh, I, you know, sold the family home, and now I'm a land developer, and I, I've moved like four times. I said, isn't that funny? You get a little piece of paper from the state, from the government, that gives you a deed, a title to that property, and then you can exchange that with other people for money. I said, that's where the state changes things. Because beforehand, in a trustee family, you had to go to the patriarch of your family, which might be your great uncle, and he had to give permission to liquidate land, which he would almost never do, right? So in those cultures, that state, the growth of the state, enabled you to live this free life. The more the state takes power over the family, the less we need our biological family and the more we turn to the state, right? So that becomes the more freedom I as an individual get, 
But the less rooted I am as an individual, the less connected, the less relationships I have in my life that define me. This becomes a very characteristic definition of America. The great Alexis de Tocqueville in his wonderful book, um, Democracy in America, he's, he keeps asking himself, why do French democracies keep failing? And yet in the US, after the War of Independence, they were able to maintain their republic. So he goes up and down New England, all over the place, to try to figure this out. And he realizes America, like Chesterton says, was the first nation founded by a creed, not really on, uh, not as a people, but as a creed. What ended up happening in America was we were the first democratic society. That is, we had flattened all hierarchies for the most part, which is why early America was very suspicious of the Catholic Church that refused to be flattened, right? And so what you have is in America, you have the exceptional nation because it didn't have an aristocracy. And yet you look at all the inherited wealth and titles and lands and history of Europe and it's bounded by this chain that goes from the ceiling where the king is to the floor where the lowliest peasant is. And Alexis de Tocqueville said, it might be a chain, the hierarchy that goes up socially and down bottom, but at the bottom of that chain, that peasant knows where he is on that chain. And he still has an identity and a sense of belonging. He said, but in America, we've unchained it from the roof, from the ceiling. We've flattened it out, but we also delinked everything. So now he has the, what he calls the rise of the democratic man, which is homo solus, the lonely man. Yes, we no longer have a hierarchy over us, but now we don't know where we fit in. How many people from uh, African nations, South American nations, Central American nations? I get this the most from my Indian parishioners. When they come over, I ask them, you know, like, why did you, first generation immigrant, why did you come here? And they say, America's a land of opportunity, and in America, you can be anything you want. You ever hear that phrase from your immigrants in your parish? Almost all of them say that. You can be anything. That's why I love America, because we live in a de-linked society. I don't have to follow in the footsteps of dad if I don't want to. In fact, many people are here because they're escaping that world. That has consequences that maybe we don't fully appreciate. That's what Alexei de Tocqueville was talking about when he called us the democratic man, that we, we are the harbingers of the democratic age. So we're going to go through what the consequences of that looks like. All right, so far we've had a social studies lesson for the past 30 minutes. Okay. So for the most part, human life was also, this is my last point, for the most part, human life was also local. You lived and died within five miles of where you were born. For most of human history, most people who were tribal, let's say non-wandering, non-nomadic people, they died within five miles of where they were born. So what matters was the hyper-local. Your literal next-door neighbor mattered to you. Okay, when we think about that and you juxtapose it with the common villain within almost all of Pope Francis's major writings, which is globalization, right? Globalization versus not just the village, but even my neighborhood, my street. Completely contradictory in throughout all of human history, but now things have changed. Since the Industrial Revolution, what has happened? It's been a slow burn, but you have men leaving homes, going further away in order to do their jobs. Their young boys are not watching them. Their young boys are not apprenticed into the life of a man anymore. You had child labor and all that stuff, but these were not fathers and sons working together. You have this experience of now women were at home alone with the children and men were off working. This is the first time for the most part, for most of humanity, that this started to become the norm. You have the massive spike in urbanization as people began to pour out of rural communities and into the cities. 
You have the shift into the democratic age now in the West of Europe and all over the place. Um, you have a lot of flattening of social hierarchies, especially in the end of the 1800s and the rise of anti-clericalism within Europe. But here in the United States, it was just good old fashioned bigotry against Catholics. You also have the prevalence of the Baptists, right? Baptists don't have hierarchies, do they? That's why they're so favored, Baptists and Southern Baptists. Where I'm from in Texas, Almost everyone, you can just presume they are either Baptist, Southern Baptist, or non-denom, right? Unless they're Hispanic. Then you can presume that they're an ex-Catholic, right? If they're second generation, they're probably ex-Catholic, right? So you also shift from having aunts, uncles. How many of y'all were raised near your aunts, uncles, and cousins? Near, like you saw them at least once a month. Okay, how many of you were raised so close that you saw them at least once a week? Handful of you, okay. Now, see, it's amazing. I have a buddy who was uh, Barack Obama, President Obama's um, uh, uh, Secret Service uh, officer, right? He was one of the guys that would go with him on Air Force One and stuff. So he'd wake up early in the morning. He'd go jog about eight, nine miles before work would start around his neighborhood in D.C., Maryland area. And on Saturdays, because he didn't work on Saturdays, he would sleep until eight and he would go for a 10-mile run. And then as he's coming back, he would see this group uh, of people barbecuing in a public school parking lot. He goes up to him one day and he's like, what are y'all doing? And they're like, what? He said, well, who are you? Are you like a committee, a club? Are you a local school? And they're and just like, we're a family. What do you mean you're a family? He said, well, you know, we're a Mexican family and all of our families kind of spread out all over the D.C., the Virginia, the Maryland side. We're all over the city. So once a week, we all get together in this public school parking lot. We bring our grills, we barbecue, we eat food together, and we play, you know, ball and hang out and do whatever. And the old folks sit over here and talk and all that stuff. And he said, once a week? He's like, my brother lives 15 minutes from me and I see him maybe once every couple months. And they just looked at me and said, well, family is everything to us. Now, my buddy who said that is funny because his brother went to Franciscan. Family was everything to him. But he had started his own family, you see, and he belonged to this domestic view of the family, whereas this family in front of him had a trustee model of the family. To them, family did not mean mom, dad, kids. It meant aunts, uncles, cousins. It always involved the wider family. So why does that matter? Because that affects the way we view our relationship to God, church, and others. What happens is it's still local in the 1800s and 1900s. It's still local, but what we mean by local rapidly begins to expand to encompass an entire city, not just a neighborhood or a village. World War I and youth culture. Probably the greatest shift in U.S. history comes after World War I. If you know the story, a bunch of young men go off to war, and it was the most traumatic war in the world. Why? Because the old style of doing war met with the new mechanistic means of warfare. Right? So now you have people with machine guns running into fields of men marching as if this were the Civil War or the War for Independence. So they just form their columns, rows, and go straight. And they just watch thousands upon thousands get gunned down. Artillery shells, that never stopped. If you want to really immerse yourself into World War I, get the podcast um, Hardcore History, and it's called Blueprint to Armageddon. It is the most incredible recounting of World War I I have ever heard. And it immerses you in the horror. So what happened as a result of that? You have the Roaring Twenties. You have these young men coming back from war, shell-shocked, deeply disturbed, no one helping them. And so what did they do? They felt life was hopeless, so they threw themselves into a new musical form that had just been developed called jazz. 
Now, I didn't know this until literally a week ago doing research for this, but jazz was seen. The reason why so many people condemned it today were like, oh, that's cute, kind of like Elvis, right? Like people were so anti-Elvis and were like, oh, that's cute, Elvis. Yeah, I love Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog or whatever. Jazz was seen as the anti-waltz. Do you know what waltzes are? I've never done a waltz in my life. A waltz, if you ever watch those old-timey movies, right? A waltz is community dance. It's folk dance. It's traditional dance. Every nation, families, tribes, different groups, they had their own types of waltzes. But jazz was an overthrow of those old norms. It was couple dance, individual dance. You dance with one person to this music. Yeah, you were in a crowd, but they didn't matter. It's just what you two were doing. It was condemned over and over again by all these people who were seeing it as a birthplace of hedonism. Then you have prohibition. What leads to prohibition but the rise of speakeasies? And you have this roaring 20 where drugs, alcohol, and jazz clubs fueled everything. I don't care about life because it's going to end. And then what happened? The roaring 20s purchased by credit fails us. And we entered into the Great Depression. I would say the Great Depression had more consequences for Catholic youth ministry than any other thing in the 20th century. Why? Because you have the rise of anti-child labor and anti-truancy laws. Because FDR and other, other presidential candidates and other people, they didn't want children, young men, 12, 13, 14, competing with their fathers for stable work in factories. So they just made it illegal for you to be 16 or younger and out of high school. So this is the beginning of federal compulsory education models. Well, what did that create? Well, you have the Roaring Twenties, which was fueled by men and women in their 20s. That's what youth culture was. It was people in their 20s. And then that shifts in the 30s and 40s into high school. So for the first time in America, when we say youth, we generally mean high school. Maybe we mean, you know, college age, all your youth. For other cultures, it means you're 29, it means you're 35, young people in general. And so you have this rise of a high school-based youth culture. This is where the Reader's Digest in 1933 talked about how this new group, they, they're going to call them the Teensters or the Teenagers. And thank God Teenagers took hold. I think teen, Teensters sounds a little bit too much like Teamsters. But um, <clears throat> so what you have is the birth of a distinct youth culture marked by its own music, marked, marked by its own time period, free, and this is the big thing, free of adult care. You were a child, now you're working your father's business at 13. You probably were working it before apprenticing, but now you're supposed to be a full member at 13, 15, whatever. But now you're in high school. Now you don't have a care in the world. Maybe you have a part-time job, but you certainly are not a man when you're 13. You're not a man when you're 15. You're not a man. Maybe when you're 16, you get your first car when you're 18 and you graduate. But the whole shift of what does it mean to be a young person begins to happen. Just think about the fact that high school culture, when we think about it kind of nostalgically, we think of the 1950s. We think of people in Letterman jackets. We think of Archie comics. We think of that stereotype as it's been kind of broadened out over the years. But we constantly go back to that. Why? Because that's when high school became a thing in our culture. You have, uh, let me walk through this. You have between, from the 1930s to the 1940s, you have the continual migration 
into the cities. At this time, you have the massive amount of migration of African-Americans, former slave families moving up from the South into cities, especially in the North and Midwest. You have um, the rise of urbanization. You have the collapse of family units. And then you have, like I already said, you have the rise of high school as a particular culture marker. Then you have World War II. What is distinct about World War II? After the boys come home from war, what did they do? They made babies. They made lots of babies. You have the baby boom. But what else did you have during World War II? You had Rosie the Riveter. You had the experience of up until this point, a man was in the factory, a woman was in the home, engaged in what? Home economics, domestic engineering, right? And then the war, because of the labor shortage, gave women, working age 20-somethings, a job to do that was more than just a stenographer or an assistant. They were working in factories, And so they began to view work life as something better than the drudgery of home life. So now you have the seabed in the 40s and 50s of what would become the sexual revolution, the feminist revolution in the 60s. Also, you have massive domestication. You have the rise. The parents of baby boomers were the greatest involved in civic groups because of what they learned in the war and patriotism and all this. They were engaged and involved in civic groups more than any other generation in the history of the United States of America. You can find these statistics in the book Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam, another uh, Harvard sociologist. When you look at this, these men coming back from the war had a Montgomery GI Bill. They had cash and money that they otherwise wouldn't have had. Many of them went to college. Many of them bought homes. Now you have the rise of suburbanization. You have white flight out of the big cities that they were running to in the 20s and 30s. Now they're going to suburbs to have their families. Right now you have urban decay. Now you have people abandoning the cities for the sake of the quaint life in the suburbs. You have everything being built in and around the car in America. You have the rise of manufacturing. The greatest economic success in the history of the United States was in the 1950s to the 1970s. You don't think that affects youth culture? Now kids are not just dropping out of school at 16, they're voluntarily staying in. In fact, culturally, they're kind of required to stay in until they're 18. My dad was born in 1947. My grandmother, who had to raise my dad and his brothers and sisters as a single parent, father abandoned him, single parent home in inner city Philadelphia in the 1950s. This is what my grandmother did. The day you turned 18, didn't matter, didn't matter if you were still in high school or not. She bought you a new pair of pants, a new white Oxford shirt, and she gave you a hundred dollar bill and she kicked you out of the house. So my dad's like, thank you, okay. Even though it's January and still got six more months left of school. Okay, so we're doing this now. So my dad had a full-time job you know, when he was like 17, full-time after school hours. In that, you started having the rise of what in the 50s? Red Scare, the Cold War, nuclear annihilation, fears over all this stuff. You have the rise of Korea and Vietnam. You have the rapid evolution of musical forms. And here's the thing that I don't think we fully appreciate. The youth give us new musical forms, right? And the youth identify with those forms and they become a center rallying point around which youth culture forms itself. So for instance, you have the rise of rock and roll, right? You have folk rock, you have all of that stuff that made the 60s the 60s, but you also have stuff, you have the Christian music of gospel, but then you have its secular version in soul music. Ray Charles being kind of the paradigm figure of that. What is soul? It's gospel without the Lord. 
So now you have an increasingly secular view of even musical forms that were brought up in the church. You then have this whole widespread um, rejection in the 60s of youth culture from its adult culture. So this is, so you could say it was born in the 20s, it crystallized into its own thing in the 30s and 40s, and then in the 1960s, youth culture definitively broke with adult culture, right? Phrases like, don't trust anyone over 30 was a popular phrase said by baby boomers who are the children of World War II veterans. So what happens? They are raised in a time of unprecedented success and at a time of globalized war, but also global markets. Now we have boats and planes and trains shipping stuff all over the world so that when Vatican II is beginning, I think it's the bishop of, uh, the Archbishop of San Antonio gives an address, I might be wrong on this, but it's a famous address where he references blue jeans and they don't know how to translate that in the Latin, so they just put quote marks and put blue jeans in there because he's talking about this mass culture for the first time in human history that you can find kids all over the world who are wearing the exact same brand of blue jeans. And I think we miss out of these shifts of mass culturation and global culturation. I think we miss what's happening to young people. We miss the fact that, yeah, so what? I used to wear the traditional dress of my tribe, people, clan, family, right? Now it's my kid wears blue jeans that's sold by Levi's, uh, you know, by a company in California that's manufactured in China. There's this global movement that is unrooting our children from ourselves. This lack of roots becomes the place where both state interest and corporate interest come in to fill the void where the family departs. If you want to do more research on this, Patrick Deneen in his book, Why Liberalism Failed, his whole point is statism and corporatism are two sides of the same coin. And but what both of them want, what the government wants and what the corporations want, is for you to lose your identity connected to your family, your culture, your religion, your society, you know, the nation that you came from. It wants to strip you of that. Why? So that it can be that for you, that it can tell you who you are and whose you are. And that becomes very dangerous when Nike sets the agenda for what I am as a young person. As this begins to grow, you see mass media uh, take over the whole culture. In the 60s, there's a response. Adults don't leave it there. Adults just still throw up their hands and say, oh, well, sorry, kids. Enjoy uh, you know, your mass co uh, commoditization, right? What they do is they begin to develop forms and systems to reach out to the youth that are now detached from the adult world. And they create Little League. What is Little League? A whole system of sports, an institution of sports to help kids be formed in virtues so that they can transition from this new thing called adolescence into adulthood. That was the whole reasoning behind youth sports. You also have the birth of modern, the modern form of youth ministry. Billy Graham, you have the rise of uh, Youth for Christ, and uh, what's the other youth movement, the non-denominational, youth interdenominational, what am I thinking of? Young Life, thank you. Young Life came shortly after Youth for Christ. You have these movements. What were their movements? Well, originally it was a bunch of men in nice suits talking in tents to youth. And I, I remember looking at this picture in my Youth Ministry 101 class, and we're going through these, this history of it, and it was fascinating. Why would you churn out by the hundreds to see two men dressed in suits talking about the Bible? And the reason why they did that is these men, Billy Graham was one of them, spoke in their language. 
They used references and idioms, and they didn't approve of youth culture. In fact, almost all of their message condemned youth culture. But they did it in a way that appropriated, or you could say, using Francis's words, accompanied the youth. They used the language of the youth to criticize youth culture. Basically, in the 70s, that mode would switch to not just focusing on the negative, but finding the positive, 70s and 80s. Adults were going out of their way, Kiwanis educating youth, you know, key clubs and things like that, to shepherd young people into adulthood. By the time you get to the 80s, all of these systems, especially in the 90s, but it starts happening in the 80s, the systems of youth help became inverted. They became inverted. So instead of adults serving kids to help them transition into adulthood, you had adults using kids for the sake of their careers. I only have to mention, if this were an audience in Texas, I think, since we're all Southerners, right, we can somewhat sympathize with that other religion known in high school as football, right? I mean, come on. Football is a absolute religion. I one time read a Protestant pastor, Mike Iaconelli, he's the founder of Youth Specialties, say, no one can believe in the gospel and still approve of the way sports are done in our culture today, right? And I thought, oh, wow, I'm going to share that at my next parent meeting. (laughs) We spent, I I was in a diocese. I was in a diocese where the superintendent of public schools had to have her salary raised because no one could make more money in the district than the superintendent. And they wanted to hire the Friday Night Lights football coach for my football team. And what happened was the careers of adults began to ride on the success of these programs. They stopped being volunteer, they started being paid, they stopped being paid, they demanded to be better paid. They became organizations, they became institutions, they became for-profit and non-profit companies, but they basically served the adults who were trying to build their careers. One of the funny things that we were talking about right beforehand is uh, the problem of trying to find a youth minister who doesn't want to be a conference speaker. I can't tell you how many times, so I do the Soonville Youth Conferences. We all talk about how annoyed we get when the first, a youth minister, like we give some talk on helping your kids out of pornography, right? Because almost all the young people are addicted to pornography. And they'll come forward and they'll be like, how can I do what you do? And I'm like, well, let's start reading. Uh, Here's some research on pornography. And they're like, no, 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 no. How can I get on stage? And you're like, well, well, I mean, that's not the point. I mean, the po- I don't know, go to grad school at Franciscan, right? <laughs> Grease the wheels there to get me in the conferences. But the, the idea behind it for so many people is they're leveraging ministry to be a career. And that's new in the Catholic Church especially, which traditionally, right, we had many priests at parishes. We had many nuns at schools. We paid all of them nothing in order to make all that stuff cheap. And now we're hiring lay people just to get a, a, a simple private school um, education, right, at, at, the, at the church or school that I'm at, it's well over $8,000 per student to go to first grade in a Catholic school. And so you begin to realize that, well, you're paying them living wages and just wages, and it's not like people are getting rich and cackling off to the bank with their money bags. But at the same time, what we end up realizing is a careerism has definitely infected the church ministry life. And this was going back in the Protestant world, especially in youth ministry circles, since the 70s. And then what did the Protestant church do? Well, then they began to develop a career path called youth pastor. And then you were a youth pastor, oftentimes you developed youth church. You guys, do any of you have experience with youth church? Maybe in your, uh, in, in your diocese or in your parish boundaries, there's a non-denom mega church. 
Oftentimes, their children don't go to the same church service that the parents go to. The children go to youth church where they have a youth pastor with a hip haircut and a graphic tee and probably a couple tattoos, give them a relevant message about the gospel, and then they go back to their business. They join up with their parents who are drinking a you know, Starbucks and they walk out of the church. Why is that the model? That was never, and this is the funny thing, you're hearing these cries from every corner of the Protestant um, evangelical world about youth ministry. There was something better than youth church that was conceived of at the time of the apostles. It was called the church. And to have parents and teens together was a better approach than to separate parents and teens. That's a, that's a not to put too fine a point of it, but that's a very German educational model, right? That is not necessarily German education public school model. That goes back to the Kaiser. That does not necessarily go back to Christ. And so what we want to do is we want to repristinate youth ministry, right? Because right now what we're dealing with is a youth culture that not only has severed itself from adult culture, but in the 90s, it got the upper hand. And now you have the sad state of adults who don't want to be adults. You also have the sad state of adults who want to act and dress like children. Do you have ever deal with that in your schools or something? I see in this mom walk in and I'm like, literally, you're wearing the same thing as your daughter. She's 12. Yours is a little bit more scandalous. Right. And more bedazzled. Right. So when we begin to look at these things, we realize, why is it like this? Why did this happen to where there's such a shift? Now, adults don't want to be established elders, wise, helpers, servants of the next generation. We all want to be in the limelight. We all want to be young again, desperately so. And Pope Francis actually points out several of these contradictions within our culture and goes through them. And I actually think they're, they are quite powerful. In the 2000s, what's the major shift that we have? In the 90s, we got cable TV, but in the 2000s, we got AOL, always on internet. How many of y'all in this room had AOL, dial-up internet connection, something like that, right? You've got mail, right? My parents, I made them get a separate phone line just for the internet because they kept, every time someone would call the house, it would knock you offline, right? And I was, I was, I had so many chat rooms that I was invested in at that time, I couldn't handle that. So what happened was you have always on broadband internet connection starting in 2000s, sweeping its way very quickly through Wi-Fi into people's homes. High definition broadcast signals. And then in 2007, something happened. You know what that something was? Steve Jobs shows everyone an internet communicator, a music device, and uh, a telephone all rolled into one. When I uh, was a guest speaker, a uh, speaker guy invited to do a middle school uh, teaching at a retreat, I was to give two things on the kerygma. I walked in on a Saturday morning and I said, how's it going? You know, give me the updates. And they said, man, we have been up all night. And I said, what are you up all night? What, what, what's happening? They sneaking out, doing all the funny things that kids have always done, right? Sneaking out, if there's like a body of water nearby, they jump in it or whatever. She's like, no, man, we could see these lights on in their rooms, they're just on their phones. And I said, well, what happened when you went in and talked to him? He's like, they're watching porn on retreat. Right, so all these retreat centers that used to be a blast because you could get away, well, now they're all running Wi-Fi and the cell tower is five miles away so you get good reception. How can you break into some kid's life when after your message, they're going right into their dorm room and as a group watching porn? What do you think that does to your ability to speak the truth of the gospel into their hearts? This is why our message needs to be uniform to parents. The purchase of a cell phone that's a smartphone is what is going to increase by about 40% your child's anxiety, depression, and the likelihood of their addiction to pornography. So as adults, we need to be adults 
and buy them dumb phones if you, quote, need to get a hold of them. How did we go hundreds of years? How did we go the last hundred years without kids having cell phones coming home from school at the end of the day? Right? Oh, I need to have my kid. Okay, it's great. Super convenient. Buy them a dumb phone. Don't get them something with a screen. Don't, for the love of all that is good, let them have a social media account until as late as possible. Because everything that our industry does, Stanford literally has a graduate degree department. The, the professor is known as the doctor of billionaires. The whole thing is to use machine learning to alter human behavior. And it, the, the bulk of their research rests on how to make Las Vegas locals uh, addicts to video gambling. You know the slot machines in casinos? It used to be the green felt tables were where Las Vegas made the bulk of its money. That's not true at all. 80% of all revenue made in Las Vegas is made from computer slot machines. Screens that have fake wheels spinning that try to stop. Oh, you got sevens, you win. And of that 80% of revenue, 75% of people who contribute that revenue are local Las Vegas residents. This isn't grandma and grandpa coming in for a fun weekend out of town while they're at a conference. Right, this is people who are addicted by design. In fact, that's the name of the book that you need to read, Addicted by Design, or you can get a book that draws powerful insights from it, Matthew Crawford's The World Beyond Your Head. And what they did was they took those principles and applied it to a cell phone. Why? Because if you don't pay for Facebook, you're what's being sold. And the more time you can get on, they can get from you on their platform, the more money they make from you. The more of your data and information that they can extrapolate from your being online the more money they make off you. So they literally spend hundreds of hours A-B testing what color blue will keep you locked in on this page for five more seconds. Facebook got caught by Apple playing a silent noise. What does that mean? So when you're using your iPhone, right, you're in an app, and then you swipe or you hit the button and you get rid of it, and it goes into that background mode, it, the, what, what Apple does is it just kind of takes a snapshot of where it is operationally and pauses everything so that you can resume right where you left off. But what Facebook found out was they can't keep collecting data on you if their app is not active. So the moment you click away, Facebook stops its pipeline. So what they began doing was imitating as if they were a music player. If you have a music player and you play a song, you close the screen, you put it in your pocket, you can still hear that music. If you're an audible listener like I am, you can still listen to your audiobook, even when you're on the browser app or whatever. So they realized was if they play a sound file that has literally no sound attached to it, but the file itself is playing, even if it's in the background, the phone still keeps it in the foreground. So it still keeps collecting your data. And if you gave it approval to collect your microphone data, it's still collecting that too. Recording where you are, what you're talking about, what you're doing. Now imagine that for Instagram. Imagine that for uh, uh, Snapchat. Snapchat, which created this thing called Snap Streaks, which is where when you communicate back and forth with someone else, it gives you a streak. If you maintain that streak, you get, what, a bigger star. That's it, nothing. But kids became addicted, and they began measuring hundreds of kids that I'm trying to keep these streaks up with. They know how to use machine learning to gamify and change human behavior because they learned it from the slot machines. You know what their expression is in Las Vegas literature? Play to extinction. 
That's the nice term that they use to describe zeroing out your bank accounts. And that's what they're doing to our young people's attention. Now they have a hardcore pornographic theater in their pockets with them at all times, coupled with a machine that produces more depression and more anxiety, coupled with this ability to be always on, that they can be bullied morning, noon, and night, not just when they're passing class and that jerk from fourth period is in the hallway. Now they are perpetually a target. Now not only that, but the images that they post on Facebook have to be better than they were in the past in order to get the same number of likes. They live for likes. We think likes are stupid because for us, the phone is a tool. For them, it's an extension of who they are as a person. So now youth culture is not just the dominant culture. It is as if it's been filled with helium and is floating off in the ether. Adults don't even have access I'm the number one complaint I have of parents of their teenagers, and they find out that their kids are sexting, right, sending inappropriate pictures, you know, to each other. They're in chat rooms. They're in these things. They're on apps. It used to be a chat room. Now it's an app where they're having these incredibly, brutally sexually suggestive conversations. They're setting up liaisons. They're doing horrible things because they can't see the price tag that it carries. And for us as adults, for us as a culture, for us as a church, how do we interact with this? How do we deal with the fact, do, do we just make our parish web app a little snazzier? Maybe we have a little Tupac beat in the background when they come to our homepage, will that do it? Well then, fight. yeah, the answer is yes, that'll do it. That'll single-handedly. No, what happens is today, we need to realize that online culture is defining them. So the most important things we could do, and I hope you can hear this, is to stop catering to an online culture as a church. You can use the tools to get people connected, but once they're there, it's the relationships that matter sevenfold more than the experiences they have online. Because our kids are rapidly being de-rooted, like I said earlier, and on a level that has never before existed. And so what we wanna be is those stable institutions where kids can learn to see and judge their own life and relationships in union with, in relation to. Um, Sigmund Baumund, uh, uh, researcher, I think he's a sociologist, um, Archbishop Shapu had referenced him, and so I went and I got his book, Liquid Modernity, and he talked about previous, in previous times, previous generations, we produced really existing manufactured goods. We produced real things, and we had real institutions that people could understand, even when they were rebelling against those institutions, they knew where they stood in relation to them, like the church, right? But now, with everything being liquid, with everything being software, with software eating the world, what we have is an inability to judge where I stand in relation to these things. When we put up television screens as welcome signs in the narthex of our church and iPads so that people could donate, just like they do in the big non-denoms, do you know the number one, number two, and number three group to demand that we get those out, out of our churches? It was the young adults. The most common phrase we heard is, for the love, we see screens all day. I come to church to get away from it, right? But the incentive is so strong, it's so overwhelming that we think, well, if they love technology and their face is always in a phone, then that must mean the way to minister to them is to give them more technology, and it couldn't be further from the truth. What we need to be is the place where actual relationships can occur where they can get drawn into that great silence before God, the God who loves them, because you can't hear God in noise. And you can't develop a prayer life if all you have is distraction. Right? You know this. When you went to seminary, 
right? Probably one of the key things you had to learn, especially if you were coming out of high school or coming out of college, was to how to be still and shut up and listen to God's voice. Where do they have that opportunity? When their phone wakes them up with their favorite song, they drive with it paired to their Bluetooth device in their car, they get out of their car, they put their earbuds in. Now they have a soundtrack walking to and from and during class. You wanna know why boys have long hair? It's to hide their earbuds that they keep it. Kids literally keep dead earbuds in their ears. They put it in, the teacher comes, give me your earbuds. And they give it to them. And then they pull out the real ones and they just sit there like this the whole time. And they're doing it in your youth groups if you haven't noticed them. You need to be on the watch for that. It's always funny when kids think they're sneaking like text messages during youth group because they pull out their phone and it's like a dark room and their face now has a spotlight on it and they think we can't tell. Um, It's called dark mode. But um, when we look at this stuff, we begin to see that the state of the youth right now is at a fever pitch. It is massively capable of being manipulated by all the wrong people. Why? Because reflection, study, all of that stuff is being attacked at a level heretofore never experienced. It's not just that radio playing that Elvis music. It's not just the, the devil's rock and roll coming at you. They can put in earbuds and push play and have access to 40 million songs that a parent will have no conception of what they're listening to. And they go off on their merry way, even if they're outside, which they rarely are these days. I live in a neighborhood filled with young kids. When the pandemic hit, I thought, at least I'll get to know their neighbors because they're all home from school. I only had one neighbor that let their kids go outside. The rest just stayed inside with video games. One neighbor, my whole street, almost every house has toddlers, little kids. No one was outside but my kids. And the crazy thing is, this is the norm. So how do we respond? Well, that's what the Pope is gonna ask us to do in a new and radical way. He's gonna invite a Christocentrism. I love chapter four where he just preaches the gospel to young people. I would encourage you, if you're gonna go uh, before tomorrow's keynotes, you just want something to read, go to chapter four and read through chapter four. I think it's beautiful, I think it's powerful. But from this point, from this rootless, uh, anti-biological, anti-familial approach, this is where the ministry of the church begins. This is where we are. And in this brave new world, right, of mass culture, of globalization, of all the stuff that I'm sure you've heard a thousand times before, this is where we find ourselves doing ministry to youth. So this is the big picture of Americana. 